Nearly 70% of all working adults feel completely stuck in their careers. They go to work every day, they feel completely unfulfilled, and they're not doing the things that they are passionate or excited about. In today's world of entrepreneurship, side hustles, and starting your own endeavors, it can be very alluring to finally figure out how to take that step to move forward. But that step can be terrifying. What steps should you be taking? What are the first things you should do? If you find yourself asking these questions, then this is the episode for you. Our guest today is Stephanie Pinsley. Stephanie is a Cornell graduate, and after working on some major campaigns at Google, made a decision that it was time for a pivot. Stephanie helps individuals get unstuck from their careers, take those steps forward, and live the life they've always wanted to live. So friends, are you ready? Three, two, one, let's go. Hey everyone, what's going on? I'm Mike Fancher and welcome to this episode of the MindFit Method podcast. I'm excited because today we have Stephanie on the podcast and she's going to talk about the step that a lot of people don't want to take, but that everyone dreams about. It's a step that where we think about our careers, we think about oh, where we are in our lives right now, where we want to be. And sometimes that step feels like a chasm. It feels like it's so far away. But what if you actually took that step? Stephanie did. And she worked in a company that I think every single person that's listening to this will recognize. And yet she was able to move away from that company and be able to start a new life that is helping individuals all over the world. It's fantastic. So Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. I am stoked to have you here. Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm so excited. That was such a great introduction. Well, to start, can you kind of share a bit of your origin story? Like what got us here today? Oh, what got us here today? Quite a bit. No, it's, just, it's, a, it's a long journey. Rather than take you through all of it, which I think it really started back in college, but the real keystone moment for me was obviously getting my job at Google. I graduated college. I got what I thought was my dream job. I was a marketer for four years throughout college, doing all sorts of internships. And I was a marketing concentration. I loved it. And so I ended up getting a, a role as an associate products marketing manager, which is just the entry-level marketing team at Google. And I was absolutely like thrilled. And I moved to San Francisco. I'm across the country from my family. And for a while, it was wonderful. I got to work on really cool brand campaigns and launch amazing ads with McCoy Culkin. It was incredible. But over time, the nature of my role changed a bit. We kind of moved teams. You know how companies will like reprioritize. And oh, I started to get very burned out. And I didn't quite know why. It wasn't necessarily the workload, but it was just, I was so not interested in the work anymore. Something about it just was not resonating with me. It wasn't letting me out. And as someone with ADHD, when I work on something that is not interesting to me for an extended period of time, it is very draining. I think this happens for anyone, regardless of whether or not you're neurodivergent, but especially if you are, it can be very taxing to work on something that you're not interested in for long periods. So I got to a point of extreme burnout, which kind of caught me by surprise. I think that happens a lot with people that get burnt out. They often will sort of hit a wall one day and think, how do they get to this point? And so I had to take a leave of absence. And this was a really huge turning point for me because I thought something was wrong with me. I was like, why can't I just keep powering through like my coworkers? What is wrong? I'm at the, I'm at the ultimate dream company. I'm trying to gaslight myself into being grateful for this job, even though I know in my heart something is wrong. And so I'm on this leave of absence. I'm looking for some sort of creative outlet. I wanted to feel like I was making an impact as well. I wanted some freedom and autonomy because I didn't feel that in my role. And so I started posting on TikTok. I just started sharing content on marketing, branding, mindset, success tips, really anything I wanted to. But it was mostly targeted to the small business community. And pretty quickly, I grew an audience and I started attracting all sorts of opportunities like podcast features or potential clients before I even launched a program, potential business partnerships, all sorts of things. And it became like the beginning of an epiphany for me to realize just how powerful personal branding is. But that was something I realized later on. All that being said, now I'm, I'm on leave. I've grown an audience and I know I don't want to go back. 
But I'm like, all right, let me give it one last college try. And I also wanted to end on good terms with my coworkers. I didn't want to just be like, see ya. <laughs> just on leave and now I'm peacing out. And so I went back, gave it a shot. It was just more of the same. And so I ended up quitting at my job at Google in February 2021. I used the, the platform I built, my personal brand, this foundation, as a launch pad for my first group coaching program. Now, that's not the saying I just quit my job and went without a plan. I hired a business coach. I reached out to an old entrepreneurship professor from Cornell and said, hey, like, can you hook me up with a good business coach? Because there's a lot of snake oil salesmen. And I'm like, maybe she knows. She's like, I don't know. But I have this 12-week online women's entrepreneurship course through Bank of America and Cornell. You can take it. It's free. And so uh, the stars were aligning for me. Not to say it was easy. The first, the first program I built was definitely very difficult. But I ventured into entrepreneurship. And things were going pretty well for a while. I was into marketing, I was getting clients, but I hit a wall again. I had this another breaking point where I'm like, oh, this is not doing it. Like just as I had it at Google, I had it again in my own business. And so I ended up having to take a big step and really get to the core of what is it that I truly feel passionate about? What is it that I'm really meant to help people do? And that's sort of the beginning of a whole other journey that I've been on, which is helping people get unstuck in their careers. And that's really through a combination of personal branding to attract those opportunities. Mindset works. We can reprogram our subconscious, which is huge, especially if you're trying to make a career change because it's very scary. There's a lot of serious limiting beliefs that come up. Um, and, and we use self-discovery, deep, deep self-discovery to get to know ourselves on a level that we never had before, because that's something that we're often lacking. But that's the long and short of it. I'll stop there before going too far. Oh, that was great. I know from a personal branding standpoint, it really, it clearly played a crucial role in your pivot. And I've always said there's a lot of power in the pivot. You just need to know how to direct that power in the right direction. How do you think for people that are stuck right now, they're in a job, it's not what they want to be doing, and they just don't know what is step one, right? Everyone like, and people will wait 10 years to take step one, which is probably the biggest mistake because they need to know up front. Step one is probably not going to be a good step. It's going to be imperfect. There's going to be things that you do wrong with it. But what advice would you give to someone who's in that job, doesn't want to do what they're doing right now, and they've got to take step one, but they don't know what it is. What would you suggest to them? Well, first of all, no, that's such a common issue, especially because the way that we end up in certain careers, when you think about it, it's not usually based on our own internal compass. It's based on external factors, like what our family and friends push us into our society or the major that we follow, which we choose before our brains have even finished developing, yet we will then sometimes follow careers for decades simply because of a, it, it, we already invested time and energy into it. All that is to say, you don't have a lot of self-awareness often when you pick a career and then you end up very misaligned and then you feel like, I don't like it, but I don't know why. So the first step is to figure out what is not working. Look at all of, you know, like ask yourself and I actually built an entire free ebook all about this. It's called the Career Pivot Playbook because this is something that I've helped so many people with and it really does come down to a specific formula. What's missing? Figure out what about your career is not working for you. What is aligned for you? So what are your core values? What are your, what are the things that drive you? What are your, your motivators? And then get a sense of what are all of my biggest strengths and passion? And this is also something people struggle with. They're like, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And so often it requires us to go through a series of questions, which is what this ebook does to really go on this journey of self-rediscovery. So figure out what's not working, figure out what is working. And now we're starting to build a picture of who we are. And we're starting to see, okay, this is probably going to give me a little bit more direction. Now, that's not going to give you the ultimate picture, right? Because sometimes, and this is really the case with any career pivot, you don't know with certainty that the thing that you pick is going to be the thing that you want to stick with long-term. You just don't. And I think this is something that holds so many people back. I hear it so often from clients that they just are too afraid to make the wrong decision. And this is where personal branding could be such a powerful tool because it allows you to start dipping your toe into different potential career directions without actually pivoting. So let's say you go through the self-discovery and you find like, oh, these are some big 
themes. Because that's another thing that we go through in the book. It's like, okay, answer these questions, find some common themes, some groups of like broader topics that you're interested in, right? These can begin to act as your personal brand content pillars. So as an example, for myself, when I started my personal brand, my content pillars were marketing, branding, mindset, subconscious reprogramming. It was a, a broad spectrum. But by creating content, number one, I got to see, am I interested in this topic? Is this really lighting a fire? Because if you don't like creating content about it, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to want to pursue a career in it. So that's one reason it's very powerful. The second is when we are creating high value content, adding value for our audience, we're helping them solve their problems, helping them achieve their goals. We're inspiring them in these different pillars. We are now seeing what's resonating with them. This is starting to give us clues as to whether or not there's market demand. And so through content creation, through personal branding, we can start to isolate what are different areas that we're more interested in. Now, what's great is now I'm building my authority, my visibility in these new spaces. And this is wonderful if you're trying to pivot into a new industry entirely, because this is how you start to build your credibility and you start be positioning yourself as a thought leader. That's not how, that's not like the one way to do it. That's how I teach people to do it. But to your question about where to start, I think, again, it just comes back to getting to know yourself, getting rediscovery of who you are. I know you grew a very substantial following on TikTok during your leave of absence. I believe I read somewhere it was over 70,000, if I remember correctly. Yeah, about that. (laughs) It's been going down because I've been changing my niche, but let's hold on. (laughs) But that's actually, it's a great point though, because there's a lot of big platforms today. You've got Facebook, you've got Instagram, you've got TikTok, you've got now YouTube Shorts seems to be flying everywhere. I've heard from the gurus that some say you choose one and you stick with it for a year. I hear others that say, absolutely not. You need to put yourself out on as many different platforms as possible. You've lived this and it sounds like you're still doing it to this day in your current business. What do you recommend to someone that's starting? That's a great question because there's something that tricks people up a lot. And I can't say that there's one ultimate, like, this is the absolute way you should go. My school of thought is pick one platform that you're really going to invest in, that you're going to show up consistently in, that you're going to know that when you have very little effort left in your brain or very little motivation left at the end of your day, let's say if you're working a full-time job, you're not like, I have all this extra energy and time to build my personal rate. So first of all... Pick one platform that you're excited about that's going to reach the target audience. If you know what your target audience is, you don't have to know that yet. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, number one, build your email list. So as you're growing your audience on this one platform, also be trying to build an email list. Get these people off their, this platform because we don't own any of these platforms. You can get kicked off at any point. You can get banned. Your account can get hacked. And all this work that you've put into building your personal brain is gone like that unless you are building an email list. So get people onto your own sort of owned platform. Now, I would also recommend, especially if you're creating something like an Instagram reel very often, then you have a short form video asset that you can very easily repurpose. So for, for example, for me, my main platform is Instagram, but that doesn't mean I won't sometimes share it as a TikTok or a short or an, a Pinterest idea pin. But I've basically identified like, I think this is what I would recommend. Identify your primary platform. For me, it's Instagram. And then identify a secondary platform. One other one that you will then repurpose content onto. This is a good place to start as well as building our email list. But again, especially in the beginning, we don't want to overwhelm ourselves. We don't want to spread ourselves too thin. Don't try to be everywhere because you're going to very quickly burn yourself out. You're going to feel like I can't keep up with this. You're going to build an unhealthy relationship with social media. And if you, if for this to work, for you to get real benefits out of your personal brand, you have to invest it in the long haul. You have to know it's not a linear process. So yeah, it's a difficult question to answer. And as you know, a lot of people are of different sort of points of view about it. Let me ask, because you said choosing one platform, the one that you're the most energized about or something to that extent. How do you gauge that? Is it the one that you like to use the best? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I should have clarified that earlier. So first of all, what kind of content do you like to create? That's the first thing you ask yourself. Is it easiest for you to get on and talk on a podcast? Or is it easiest for you to film yourself on video? Or maybe you don't like either of those. Maybe you're a great writer. 
So first of all, figure out what kind of content is easiest for you to create. Let's say it's video. Maybe you should start with Instagram because you could do short form videos there with stories, with reels. You could go live. Um, but yeah, again, focus on the platform that is going to cater to your style of creation the most. And once you kind of have a better sense of your target audience, be sure that you're showing up on the platform that they're on. And this is when we're starting to figure out like, okay, if I know that I want to pivot into a different career, let's say I'm a lawyer and I want to become a coach for new moms. I want to be sure that I'm showing up on platforms where new moms are consuming content. And so luckily that's a pretty broad spectrum, but just pay attention to both. Where do you like showing up? What's easiest for you to create? And then eventually be sure that you're also showing up on platforms that, you know, the, the audience you want to reach is on. So a couple of things that, that you've said definitely hit home with me. First was the email list. <laughs> uh, I've followed Russell Brunson and ClickFunnels for a very, very long time. Yeah. And I know that is one of his core things is shifting out of, you know, things that you don't own into something that you do and you do own your own email list, which is key. Mm-hmm. So that definitely a hundred percent agree. Let's talk about showing up though, because you said it a couple of times on social media. One of my mentors is Alex Hermosi, who is someone that I have so much respect for. He owns uh, Acquisition.com, worked very closely with Russell Brunson through his initial company, Jim Launce, and now he's literally went from having zero to having a $200 million company. So he's done an amazing job. But the amount of content... Now, obviously, he has a team that does this, and he will say he spends $35,000 a week on his content, but his return is 30 to 1 at this point for what he's what he's putting out. For someone that doesn't have a budget of $35,000 a week, what is good? What is bad? What is too much? What is not enough when it comes to content? And I'll use my own self as a personal example because you know when I post reels, stories, and a post four days in a row, Facebook quote unquote rewards me for giving me increased visibility. But what is the key to really being able to brand yourself correctly from a frequency standpoint on social media? This is a hard question to answer because it depends on your goals, right? So if I'm just starting out, I don't necessarily need to grow a huge audience right away, especially if we're looking at it through the lens of I'm building a personal brand so I can use it as a tool in my career pivot. You don't necessarily have to have a huge reach. Now, if you want to, like, let's say you're someone that really wants to become like a full-time content creator, you want to get brand deals, which you certainly can do, then you should be posting more frequently. You should be showing up every day. But most people don't need to do that, especially if you're not trying to become quote-unquote influencer because of your personal brand. I would say, I I go back and forth with this myself because there are times when I think it's very important to show up consistently and I try to show up consistently. But then there are times when I pull back. And I think the number one thing I always tell my clients is, number one, with the frequency, this is going to sound trite, but like do your best, but don't push yourself. Don't overwhelm yourself. Don't burn yourself out. Create what is within reason for you. So it's almost as if you're kind of trying to toe the line between like discipline and honoring, you know, our my body and what I'm feeling. Because again, this is a little long haul. Again, I don't want to say like, oh, you should be posting every day or you should be posting once a week. Again, it really depends on what your goals are, how like you don't necessarily need to grow a huge audience. If I'm trying to, let's say, again, let's use this example of like pivoting from being a lawyer to being a coach for new moms. I need to worry more about how do I build my credibility, my authority? How do I position myself as a thought leader? How do I show up consistently so that I can build memorability with people? Because when you, when people know you, they end up liking you. That's just a basic fundamental principle. I learned this in like consumer behavior. It's called the familiarity principle. We like things that we are exposed to more, like point blank period. But we also need to be sure that we're being exposed to it in a relatively consistent way so that we're, there's a connecting thread. So I can't say that I have an answer as to how many times you should be posting, but I think try your best, push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Don't go too easy on yourself. Show up as much as you can, but also do not bring yourself out, engage in having a healthy relationship with it. And also ride the wave of when you are starting to feel excited by a piece of content. So what I mean by that is, I mean two things. First is do not 
feel too confined in your niche. If you don't want to post, if you have an idea for content that's not niche related, but you're like, oh, I kind of want to create about this, create it. I don't care if it's so out of your niche or not. That means you should create it. Also, in doing that, when we start to follow the natural flow of what we're passionate about and create on the fly, it's easier to create more. But batching also works very well. Batching is great. I batch my content. Now there's pros and cons to that because sometimes batch content doesn't feel as powerful and resonant as content you come up with on the fly because there's a certain energy that you bring to your content when you're like, oh, I have an idea, I'm going to sell it and I'm not going to overthink it. And that has a big impact on the resonance with your audience. So I think it's a balance. If you can do like spend time batching so you can show it more regularly, but also mix in some ad hoc filming and find what's best, find what works for you in your schedule. Kind of moving away a little bit from social media. I know the concept of getting unstuck is very central in your work. Explain this, like what does it mean and why is it essential in today's career landscape? Over 70% of people globally feel stuck in their career, which is out of control. Like when I first learned that set, I was blown away and really disheartened because I've been stuck in my career more than once and it's very taxing. What does it mean to get unstuck? I think there's very different, there's a lot of different levels to this and you're going to, we're going to feel stuck at so many different points in our lives. And there are going to be times when we're feeling incredibly stuck. Like when I was at Google and I'm like, I have no idea where I want to go next. I'm on a leave of absence because I'm so burned out and I have no real like great mentor pushing me in one direction. That can feel very heavy and that can be something very difficult to get out of. But I think in general, when we're stuck, we're almost in survival mode. We're just not, we're doing things to get by. So getting unstuck is getting out of survival mode. It's about aligning with a career that genuinely lights us up because when you start doing work that feels right to you, that's aligned with you, it will sort of like tap into this hidden reservoir of energy and drive and motivation that you did not have access to before then. And this was a big wake up call for me because especially trying to get on stuff while healing from burnout, I was worried about, you know, the time and investment it would take to change careers. But once I started taking steps towards a career that was right for me, it was like I was able to unlock this hidden well of energy that was really powerful for me. But it is so important because if we're not doing the work that we came here to do, how are we going to solve the problems that are facing us? We have so many massive, massive problems that we're all facing as a collective. And I think if we're, if we have 70% of the population in the wrong jobs, not doing the work that they came here to do, how are we going to tackle these problems? So for me, that's why I think it's so, so important that we align ourselves with the careers that we're meant to do so we can make the impact that we're meant to make solve the problems that we're facing. So much of what I think you're saying also has to do with one's mindset because the mindset is really what drives you in so many different ways. And I know mindset mastery is one of your key areas of focus. How does someone work on shifting their mindset to overcome those career challenges and obstacles but then also push it even further to poss- possibly look down the entrepreneurial path. I love this question. I just love all things mindset. It just gets, <laughs> I don't know why. I just think it's so fascinating. Um, the first thing, and this is actually something, this activity I found the first time when I was in that women's entrepreneurship course, it was this limiting beliefs activity where basically you answered a series of questions. There, no, there were statements. So I am confident in myself and my ability to achieve. I believe in my ability to make decisions well on my own. I constantly strive to achieve. So we're going through a bunch of different statements about ourselves. And we're rating how often do we feel that this is true for us, you know, and really rank from like ever to often. So now by doing this, we're building a picture of what are the limiting beliefs? And you don't need to do this. You can uncover your limiting beliefs, which is arguably the first step of all this that you, that we're talking about through things like shadow work, which I just bought a shadow work journal that I'm loving, but there's different ways to get to the coordinate. But essentially, what are the biggest limiting beliefs holding you back? What are the biggest fears holding you back? And uh, you're probably facing the fear that most other people have faced too. Fear of judgment, fear of failure, fear of making the wrong choice, fear of losing your identity. All of these things are so common for everyone that feels stuck, but Often we are blind to that, but we don't even understand 
the beliefs that are operating our lives. And 95% of our day is run by our subconscious mind. And our subconscious mind is run, it's like a software program that stores all of our memories and our beliefs. And so these beliefs that we have in our software that run 95% of our day were formed mostly between the ages of birth to seven. And this is based on what we observed in our community, in our family. And we are very often absorbing beliefs that are negative, they're disempowering, they're not in alignment with the goals that we have. But we don't even know what those beliefs are unless we do the work to uncover those. So that's step one, figuring out what are the core fears and limiting beliefs and self-doubts that are keeping me stuck because I don't care how you know smart you are. And this is a big issue I see with very ambitious, natural-born leaders that are very intelligent. They suffer from this the most because they're so afraid to fail. And they also don't recognize these fears within themselves because they kind of think like, oh, like they brush it off. And I've, I've, I've seen this so much with some of my clients where I'm asking them questions to kind of get into the heart of some of their beliefs. And they feel some resistance comes up when I start to say like, oh, it seems like you have this fear. And like, but then when we go deeper, they're like, oh yeah, like that is something that's holding me back. So recognizing that you, your limiting beliefs and your fears are not going to be obvious to you. So do the work to identify them. Now, once we know them, now comes all of the really great subconscious reprogramming work that we are now rewiring these beliefs. And so it's all about doing things like meditation, visualization. There are books, there's books on this, like Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Joe Dispenza. You can reprogram your subconscious with things like metacognition. Metacognition is probably one of the most powerful tools, which is basically watching your own thoughts. What are the, what are the narratives playing out? Pay attention to some of the most common beliefs because once you start to take yourself out of the mind and put yourself, position yourself as the watcher. So I'm now watching it. I'm not my thoughts, but I'm watching them. Start to build a picture of what are the, what is my brain telling me? By the way, a lot of what your brain tells you is true. So you don't have to listen to it and start to see like, oh, like having this thing come up again and again and again. Start to identify that and then practice presence in that moment, which metacognition requires being present to say, okay, this is not a belief that I want to continue carrying on. I don't want to continue living based on the sphere. So I'm going to now consciously change it. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to note that thought. And then I'm going to change it and say, actually, I choose to think this way. So that's just one way of reprogramming our subconscious. You could do it through hypnosis. You could do it through therapy. Again, shadow work. There's more that I'm probably not saying, but I think you can tell I'm very passionate. <laughs> Ironically, I just recorded two reels today. I haven't published them yet. And it's exactly on this topic. One of them is called, Are Humans Smarter Than an Ant? And I don't know if you've ever seen the video, but a person will put an ant on a white piece of paper and they will take a Sharpie and they will draw a circle around the ant. I don't know if you've seen this video before, but they will not cross the line because they don't know what's on the other side of that line. And the second video in succession of it is who owns your Sharpie? Because sometimes we Um, actually draw our own line and sometimes someone else owns that Sharpie and is drawing that line for us. And you nailed it. What it, where is that limiting belief coming from? So many times it is coming from us. But it goes back to the whole concept of the four-minute mile. And I know it's overused all the time, but no one could break the four-minute mile until it was until it was broken. And then a bunch of people broke the four-minute mile because the mentality, the mindset of it needed to be reset. It was so key. So I everything you just said, I completely agree with you. It's funny because I get so so many people that when that when I talk to them about this. They think, oh, mindset's just like a sloofy word. It doesn't really matter. They don't realize the gravity. And I mean, you understand this more than anything, especially with your business. You, you've seen the power of the mind and the body conjunction, but the mind is so powerful. What you believe to be true about yourself, about your life will be one blank period. Like I know that might sound too woo for some people, but your beliefs create your reality because our beliefs drive our thoughts, which drive our actions, which create our reality. So if we are not changing our beliefs and our, we're not doing the mindset work, we're not going to be able to take these huge leaps forward or it will be a lot harder to release. I think I just did a talk about this recently, but I talked about in order to make progress, you often need to reverse the process. 
our normal process as humans is we think about doing something, then we evaluate how doing something is going to make us feel, mm-hmm. and then we're supposed to initiate the action. And when we do it that way, we often get stuck in step two, and which is often why people don't take that first step because they just can't initiate that process and execute it all the way through. What I found for so many people is you've actually reversed the process. And the way I usually put this is you can't use your mind to get your mind out of a funk. But you can use your body to get your mind out of a funk. And if you just start to act, and of course, in my world, I always tailor it back to exercise and the effects that that has on the brain. But honestly, it's anything. The The psychological power of momentum is incredible. And we start, when we start something new, we start at a zero and we want to be a 10. And we look for all these shortcuts in ways to go from zero to 10. What we're missing out on when we try to do that is the joy of the accomplishment and the momentum that gets created by going from zero to one, Mm. just to one. And that zero to one will most likely feel better than it will when you go from nine to 10. Because you're starting from nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, again, everything you're saying, I totally agree with. It's so good. I, as you can tell, this is my world too. I love everything about mindset. It's so powerful. And I think you're absolutely right. The first step is the hardest. And that's why, especially for people with ADHD, break your tasks down into the most micro, micro, micro tasks. Because often we don't know which, like, maybe we know vaguely the first step to take, but... Sometimes there's too much ambiguity. And so when we have that ambiguity, it creates even more friction, even more of a reason to procrastinate. So if you look at your, your big task, like your big step one and break it down, it's a small, small, small tasks, which you could do manually, or you could use with something like ChatGPT, which I am obsessed with ChatGPT and so many, for so many reasons, but that's besides the point. <laughs> it will really help with the momentum piece. Cause you're right. It's the hardest part is just starting. I think that. For, again, so many people, when you're initiating the process of taking that step forward, people like to go in with a lot of intensity. And (laughs) people like, they're going to start a diet. And yes, I hate that word, but they're going to start a diet. They're going to start a new fitness print, whatever it is. And they go from drinking a lot of beer, a lot of wine every week eating pizza, eating out every night, a lot of ice cream, like all of these things. And then they go from that to, I am now perfectly straight. And <laughs> Ultra <average>. healthy. <laughs> and I think that there's actually a, there's a correlation between intensity and consistency. And everyone focuses on the intensity, meaning that, nope, I'm going all in. I hear that all the time. I'm going to give it 110%, which is kind of the stupidest thing ever because 100% but I'm going all in but when you go all in does your ratio of attempting to be intense and keep your intensity high negatively impact your ability to stay consistent so mm-hmm. your point about micro actions and taking those I talk about micro habits all the time and how the micro habits will help lead you to the macro habits and to the bigger yeah. thing I think if we focused more on consistency And honestly, this podcast is a great example. When I started, I had huge dreams of, oh my gosh, I'm going to do podcasting like three to five days a week. I'm going to have, it's just going to be insane. And I started with one a week and I didn't even publish my first episode until I had 10 recorded because I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to keep it up. So I knew that fear up front. That was the fear I decided to address. So instead of putting three, four, five episodes out a week, I was like, I'm going to do one episode a week for a year. Can I complete that? And I missed two weeks out of the year. So I was not perfect. Can't say that I would. But the consistency wound up running. In the podcasting world, a lot of people don't realize this, but 90% of all podcasts never make it past episode three. Really? Oh, wow. And of the remaining 10%, 90% of those never make it past episode 12. Mm. So a podcast that is greater than 12, you are in the top 1% of all podcasts. Yeah. Like it's insane when you when you look at it that way. So what is the key in that? It's actually not intensity. 
it's consistent. That's very similar to the atomic habits sort of breakdown of trying to adopt any new habit, any change. It's almost like we have to build up our brain's tolerance for this change. And you do that with small, like adjust, adjust to it. And so to your point about going from zero to a hundred, in an example in the book, if you want to become a fit person and you're sedentary, don't go, oh, I have to start going to gym five days a week. Maybe the first day you're just putting your gym shoes on and then you're, and you're doing like very incrementally small things every day. But doing that decreases the intensity, which will make you overwhelmed and quit. And I think also this is very related to the emotional cycle of change. Are you familiar with that? Yes. And I think that's probably why a lot of these podcasts don't get past episode three, because we go into things with so much excitement. The first stage is uninformed optimism. We're like jazzed about it. We can't wait to get started. We're so energized. And then time goes on and we start dipping through this trough and we're starting to see all the work that goes into it. And now we're feeling this informed pessimism. And now we get to the trough, which is the valley of despair. We give up. And so basically, if you think about it as like a bell curve, most people, when they hit the the trough, the bottom, the valley of despair, they give up. And so they get stuck in this loop, trying something new, being optimistic, saying, oh, this is too much work. I quit. Let me start something new. And so I think we have to understand that that's a normal phenomenon. And if we continue to push through the valley of despair, eventually we'll get to the informed optimism stage and then eventually success. So it's you have to really get through those the most challenging periods. And often the most challenging periods are right at the beginning because you're just so, you don't know what you don't know, but you have a hell of a lot of confidence going into it, which quickly gets crushed. I think a lot of that confidence almost is like a false confidence and it's masked by the drug of motivation. You know, motivation, I see it everywhere today. Gosh, you scroll through whether it's TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is, everything's about being motivated and getting your motivation on. Motivation is a drug and it will fail you every single time. Oh. It will never allow you to get what you, where you want to go because motivation is like a fair weather friend. When it's sunny outside and everything's great, that's when motivation shows up. When it's cold and it's nasty outside and you got to go for that run, your body motivation is not there. Yeah. But we get on this hamster wheel of motivation. When I wrote my second book, one of the things I really focused on was how technology companies are able to manipulate dopamine specific to motivation. And we actually get put on this motivation hamster wheel. So we get motivated to do something, but because of the algorithms of the programs, immediately thereafter, they can motivate us just a little bit more and a little bit more. It would be like for someone that smokes, they finish their cigarette, but just as they finish it, someone hands them another cigarette that only has like one or two puffs left in it. They're like, oh, I can finish that one too. And I can finish that one too. And we actually become motivated procrastinators. It's a very unique state to be in, but it causes us to not be able to move forward. And it's, I know it's so frustrating for people, but it's, once you recognize it, you're like, ah, I see what they're doing. I got to get off. I got to, that's it. I'm turning it off. No more. I think that's where we have to build the muscle of discipline. Fickle. But the problem is obviously discipline. I mean, not obviously. Discipline is, I think, a bad rep. Like people look at discipline as punishment. But if we reframe discipline as the highest form of self-love and self-care, we start to change the way we look at it. I think it can become such a powerful tool because you won't be able to call upon that motivation every, like uh, all the time. When you have the motivation, great, ride the wave. Don't go too far into burnout area going like obsessive. But, you know, with motivation, again, it's fickle. Discipline is something that you can call upon at any time, but it's a muscle that you have to work. It's not necessarily easy to develop, especially if you are suffering from something like ADHD. Right. You said two words earlier here um, that we're going to dive right into my next topic. And one was failure and one was fear. They often tend to go together, but... In many ways, it's a shame that they do. Failure is actually a, an incredible success. If you actually took the steps to fail at something, you now know what you have to do. Um, I don't know if you know former Navy SEAL Jocko Willowlink. He's become quite the motivational speaker on the circuit. He, and he consults with a lot of different businesses on discipline and motivation and mindset. But he told a story recently of a guy who came to him and was kind of just complaining about how everything was going wrong in his life. 
And the guy actually said to him, and I don't know why I'm telling you this because I already know what you're going to say. And Jocko says, what am I going to say? He says, you're going to say good. And he goes, because that's what you always say. Oh, I know. I know this actually. I remember. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to say good because now you know. Everything just, everything went bad. Now you know what happens. Now you know how you react. Now you know how that person's going to react. So the only end result, if you take it the right way, is good. It's not a bad thing. But that fear of failure. And when I opened my business, I mean, I was walking away from a very successful career. I was over 40 years old at that point. So I was doing all of the things that society says, you're nuts. Don't do this. Absolutely not. And I don't know if you've ever read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, but in his book, he talks about fear setting. And I actually utilized that process before I left my job. And essentially, I took the time to write down the worst case scenario, every possible thing that I could think of that went wrong, that I knew in my mind weren't going to go wrong. Don't worry, this is silly. It's a stupid task, but I should probably do it. As I look back, and as everyone knows, MindFit had to close because of COVID. Every single thing on that list happened. Every single one. But if they hadn't happened, as painful as it was, as devastating as it was, you and I wouldn't be talking today. Two books wouldn't be written. A third wouldn't be in process. We're so fearful of failure in a way. But I think that's actually wrong. I don't think we're fearful of failure. I think we're fearful of what someone's going to think of us if we fail. And if we look at what is that, what scares us so bad? Is it because my mom's going to think this? My spouse is going to think that? What is it that's actually stopping you? And I don't know if your experience in this as well, but do you think it's much more than just I'm scared? And look, it's normal to be scared when you jump into something new. But if you dive into that fear, do you also find the same thing? Well, I think what you were saying before around how you're not necessarily, like the fear, it's not a very sort of cut and dry. I think we're afraid of the feelings that we'll feel when we fail or when someone's going to judge us. We're afraid of the shame, of the guilt, of the embarrassment, especially, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about how high achievers that uh, haven't really failed a lot in their life, they're terrified of failure because they have not experienced that. And I'll tell you, my first like really big failure, it was at my first year at Google, I had this like terrifying boss. She was just very intense, brilliant, but like she scared the living girls out of me. She's intimidating me so much. And so we would have all these one-on-ones, but they would get canceled because she was a director. She was very busy. And so I'm like, great, I don't need to see you. I don't want to know. And then to my surprise, which shouldn't have been, come performance review, I got a huge wake-up call. And she's like, it's not good at this. She's like, maybe you're not cut out for Google. She gave me the lowest performance review. And this was like, a moment that I will never forget because the feelings, I had never felt that before, that deep shame, embarrassment. And that's sort of like, as painful as that was, I remember just going, biking, taking a Google bike to like some random parking area to another building, just collapsing onto the floor, crying, calling my parents, being like, I want to quit. And so that was a very big pivotal moment because after that point, almost like I shattered this barrier. I had created fear. I turned fear into this huge, terrifying monster, which we often do. Or not, not fear. I turned failure into this huge monster. I made it out to be so terrible. And so when I actually did fail, even when it was at this point where it crushed me and I broke through that wall, it was like I became way less afraid to fail after that because I realized it's just a feeling I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of that rejection. But you're so right. Failure is a teacher, but so many people don't want to hear that. They don't want to learn through the lessons. But guess what? You don't learn through success. You do not learn when we're coast, when you coast. We, it's almost like failure is a way of, it's almost like think of failure as going to the gym. Like when we go to the gym, we're working out our muscles. We're tearing these muscles to get them stronger. It's not painful. It's not, it doesn't feel good. But afterwards, we're stronger. We feel better. It's the same thing with failure. It's like we have to go through this painful, challenging process to learn the lessons, to grow and develop, just like we grow and develop our bodies, our muscles. 
in an uncomfortable way, that's what failure is. But you know what? The more you embrace it and the more you look for the lesson, it's like the ultimate antidote to dealing with all the anxiety and stuff that comes with it of the fear of failure and of failure in general, because you see the purpose, you find the meaning in it. And so I think in any case, I think fear setting is a great idea. You could also do something like, I I forgot who came up with this, but think about, you know, if you're contemplating making a big, let's say career change, but you're terrified of failing, ask yourself, all right, what am, how, how bad is it going to feel if I get to the end of my life and I haven't done the thing that I've dreamed of? And now I have all these regrets or maybe five years down the road, I still haven't done it. And now I'm thinking about all this wasted time, all these missed opportunities, how big this could have gotten is I had just started it and I just got over the fear. So position yourself sort of like in a way to really look at the regret here you'll feel if you project this that future and you haven't done the thing versus what is the, the feeling of failure or the initial pain that I'm going to experience from going after this compare those two, which, which one do you think is really going to be worse? This long-term regret and remorse from not pursuing things or the short-term discomfort that you'll experience. You talked earlier about neurodivergence, ADHD, um, ADD. It is a, it's a world today that is probably much more highlighted than it's ever been. I think more and more people are realizing the effects of it, what could be causing it, and most importantly, how do people work through it? And I know you explore that topic quite a bit. Could you dive into that a little bit? And for anyone that's out there that is really struggling, not really sure what next step to take to kind of guide them through that process? Yeah, I mean, look, ADHD, ADD, any type of neurodivergence can be very challenging. And I think number one, acknowledging that is like the first step and realizing that, you know, it, I think also this is something that happens at the beginning of diagnosis. I think people go through like a grieving phase when it kind of realize like all of these sort of, sort of the ways that they've been held back and maybe they didn't see it in the, you know, in the moment when they were diagnosed. But all that is to say, first recognizing that it does come suck, but at the same time, like you were saying, it's also a superpower. We have to learn how to work with our brains and our bodies to manage it because we are not like a neurotypical person. If you try to force yourself to act like a neurotypical person, you'll only exacerbate the symptoms of ADHD. So you have to really sort of adjust to what that is. And there's so many different things, starting with just one thing. And we talked about this before, but I think here's the challenging thing. Let's look at it through the lens of entrepreneurship. In entrepreneurship, we don't have a lot of structure, right? Especially if we're working for ourselves, we don't have any sort of business partner. Without that structure, it can become very difficult to manage ADHD because we lack the executive function to really execute on time or at all. It becomes hard for us to do simple tasks. And so on one hand, entrepreneurship is great because ADHD does better in more unstructured environments at times, where sometimes you can work hyper-focus and work for a long time. Maybe other days you're feeling an ADHD burnout and you have to pull back. So that kind of lack of structure can be good. But at the same time, it can also be challenging. Like I was saying, we don't have that accountability. So there are certain things we could do. Number one is I love body doubling. This actually is like super powerful for me. Body doubling is just basically when you work alongside someone else. For whatever reason, this reduces the anxiety that we feel to execute on a task. And so it can be very, very powerful to just work alongside someone. You know, it's like a digital co-working session, or it could just be you going to a cafe. But there's also different levels to where, you know, how much stimuli can you take? Sometimes it may be difficult for you if you have ADHD to work in a very busy shop. You might need noise canceling headphones because when we have ADHD, we're constantly distracted by one thing or another. I think a lot of people misunderstand ADHD because they think it's a deficit of attention, but oftentimes too much attention. It's hyperactive brain. We're thinking of this and that and that. And that's why something called misophonia is often common when we have ADHD, which is just like annoyance from sounds, small sounds, like the sound of someone breathing or chewing, like can really get to us and throw us off. That's a symptom. But body doubling is one thing. Finding ways to build accountability. Like I said, really hyper planning or hyper breaking down the work that you need to do. Because again, when we have too much vagueness, it can be challenging. So what what you could do alongside breaking down your tasks is number one, plan a most important task every single night for the next day. 
So look at everything that you have to do and say, what is the one thing that's going to push the needle forward the most? And that's going to be my most important task. So assign that the night before. Break that task down into some tasks so you have a good sense of what that, that looks like. Now, if we can manage our calendar, which not everyone has the ability to really adjust their calendar super specifically, but we can start to use things like time blocking. Time blocking is where we essentially will create blocks of time where we'll work on a specific task. Task. So let's say last night I discovered that I want to work on this content creation today. I'm going to go in my calendar. I'm going to schedule a block of time, let's say for two hours from two to four when I'm working on this thing. And that's going to be very helpful for ADHD because number one, we have time blindness. We lose track of time and we know exactly what we're working on for that specific time. You could also set timers and alarms because not only does this gamify it for you, which kind of builds that motivation because we're like, oh, I only have 10 minutes left in my time block to do this. I have to rush against the clock because people with ADHD know nothing motivates is better than an approaching deadline. That can be really helpful. And so the last thing I'll say about this is when you're trying to manage your calendar, use, become aware of like your, the way your energy works. So are you more of a left brain person or a right brain person? Which is easier for you? For me, I'm much more of a right brain. It's easier for me to do the creative tasks when it comes to emails and spreadsheets and the analytics of finances. I don't enjoy that. That's very depleting for me because I'm more right brain dominant. So that means when I'm planning my schedule, I'm going to, number one, try to group left and right brain tasks together as best we can. So we're not constantly context switching emails to content creation, to spreadsheets, to coaching. That's one. So group them together. But also if I know, okay, I'm a right brain dominant person, that means it's easier for me to work on right brain tasks. You may want to start with the left brain task in the beginning of the morning when you have the most energy, because now, you know, we need the most resources because it doesn't come as easily to us. But if I want to work on right brain things that are easier for me later on in the day, when I have more energy, it will be easier for me to accomplish. Does that make sense? I know that was a little complicated. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that was great. And I think that, I think everyone does find what coping mechanisms really work best for them. But I think it's always great to hear from other people as to ideas and different things that honestly work for many people that they don't, if they would just implement them regardless of whether they're neurodivergent or not, um, for so many people, they actually organize their days that way. They'd be so much more productive right out of the gate. Well, I know we've been talking for a while, but as we wrap up, do you have one piece of advice or a mindset shift that you believe can make a significant difference in someone's career or their life journey? Well, I think the mindset shift that helped me the most is recognizing that confidence and clarity are not the, you are, these are the results of action. They are not the prerequisites. So what does that mean? Most people wait for confidence and more clarity before they start taking action on anything. They want to feel more ready. Well, readiness only happens when we start taking messy action, when we allow ourselves to be imperfect and to just experiment. Through action, we will build confidence, we will build clarity, and we will feel more ready. And so if you're being held back all the time by, I'm not so ready yet. I don't want to choose the wrong thing. I don't want to take action on something that I'm not 100% planned out. This is something I see hold so many people back. They don't have like the absolute entire plan mapped out in their head. And so they won't take a step. They're, that's just not realistic. There's a quote from Steve Jobs that's, I think it says, we, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. So only in retrospect can we see how these different steps and moments and pivots have all sort of led us to where we are today. Like you were saying with the podcast, we wouldn't be here if everything had not happened as it did for you. And so even if it feels scary for you to start taking action without seeing exactly how it's going to end up, be rest in the knowing that confidence and clarity will come. and only can grow from different actions. Not taking any action or not making any decision is a decision. And so I think a lot of people hold themselves back from doing anything, thinking that they're protecting themselves, keeping themselves safe and in a stable position, when in reality, you're not. And if, if, especially if you look at this through the lights of, I'm going to stay stuck in an unfulfilling job because this is where my paycheck is. It's more secure and stable. Well, guess what? 
the career landscape is changing rapidly. There's no such thing as job security and stability. That's not to say throw that all out the window, but don't be so held back by feeling like you have to stay stuck in a job just because it has the paycheck. You can start taking small actions in parallel with that, start a new path. And that's, I say in parallel because I'm not advising people to just up and quit their jobs and start something fresh. This is why I love personal branding again, because you start building this up on the side slowly at your own pace, your authority, your credibility, you're dipping your toes into new waters. And then when you have the dilation and you see like, oh, this is work, there's real proof that this will work. Then you can actually make a significant pivot. I guess all that is to say, just start taking action, give yourself permission to be imperfect and allow that to be the way that you are as you go. You have such great insight from both working in the corporate world and working in the entrepreneurial side. Let me ask you, are there any specific books, podcasts, resources that you found very, very valuable either in both the corporate or entrepreneurial side or just in in your life path in general? The Power of Now is probably one of the most powerful books I've ever read by Eckhart Tolle. It's more spiritual, but it really helped me understand the power of being in the present moment and how that can be the antidote for anxiety, depression, or thinking. It, it's just a very powerful tool. It's be great for our health. The Power of Now is a great book because I think especially for people that are trying to go from corporate to entrepreneurship, it is such a challenging sort of pivot but the more that we can practice presence throughout the journey, the easier it will be. So The Power of Now is a great book. Like I mentioned earlier, I really love Jonas Spence's work around how he teaches you to reprogram your subconscious mind. And honestly, this might sound silly, but the most powerful sort of knowledge that I've gained has been through learning how to connect to my intuition and learning how to listen to my inner voice. And that's something that so many of us have become so deeply out of touch with. And we often confuse our ego with our intuition. We don't know how to listen to our inner voice. But when we can really tap into that, which presence is one way of really beginning to build back that muscle listening to your intuition, that can be the best guide and source of information that there was. You know what I mean? Like all the answers are within you. <laughs> the most spiritual instinct. <laughs> Absolutely. If you would, what mantra do you live by? Right now, the mantra I'm living by is it's okay to stay because I got myself into a state of burnout recently from being so single-mindedly focused on building up my new program path to purpose where I sacrificed every other element of my life other than like fitness. I just put everything else in the back burner and I just felt unsafe slowing down. I haven't. This is something I've been working through a lot where my value, and a lot of people experience this, our value and worth is so deeply tied to our productivity and our achievements and our sense of self and identity is often derived from that. And so that can be very challenging. So because our worth and our value is so tied to our achievements, we don't feel safe when we're not being I don't. I don't feel safe slowing down. When I'm not working, I feel like my values decrease. I don't feel like I'm going to be successful. And so that's been something I've been working on reprogramming for myself. Um, and that's why it's okay to slow down. It's safe to slow down is something that I live by. And I have been living by since the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. I actually sent this when I built my entrepreneurial dashboard, which is basically just like a collection of metrics that you pay attention to during your journey to see how well you're tracking for me, my mental and physical health is huge. And so moving more slowly and I was fine with that. I'm like, I'm okay with this taking longer. If that means that I can prioritize my mental and physical health. So if you also are feeling really rushed and don't feel safe slowing down, it's like your worth is so tied to achievements, then I encourage you to adopt that mantra. It's even my iPhone background or it was a couple of days. That's awesome. For people that want to learn more about you, the things that you do, the coaching that you do, how do people find you? You can find me, like I said, Instagram is my main platform, steph.pinsley, but I'll send you a link to my website. I really encourage people to get the Career Pivot Playbook I had mentioned because this really is exactly the steps that you need to take to start moving out of this career that you feel stuck in. And it's what I would have wanted and needed so badly when I felt stuck. And it's a great way to start building confidence and clarity in what this new direction will be like. And guys, for all the listeners out there, as always, 
all of Stephanie's information will be in the podcast description. So make sure you check it out there. Stephanie Pinsley, everyone, it has been fantastic having you on the show. One final question. What's next for you? Well, Path to Purpose is is my big focus. I'm in the middle of building that program and launching it. I'll be launching that early 2024. And also, I don't know if I mentioned, but my Instagram and you can follow me everywhere, Steph.Pinsley, S-T-E-S dot P-I-N-S-L-E-Y. Awesome. Stephanie, this has been fantastic. I know you and I think the same way on so many of the mindset and productivity worlds that we discussed today, which was really, really cool. I think you're doing amazing things. I love the fact of the transition that you've made from the corporate world into the entrepreneurial world. I think it is an aspiration for so many people out there. Keep doing the amazing things you're doing. And thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you having me on. This was such a great discussion. I love it. Hey, everybody. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Stephanie. Make sure you click that subscribe button because even though we're getting close to 100 episodes, We're just getting started. So stay driven, everybody. And until next time.